Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and we have a great episode again for you this week. I had a wonderful, moving, and a very fun conversation with Shane Claiborne. Now, Shane is an amazing minister of the gospel and a devoted follower of Jesus. Uh, You've probably heard of Shane. You might have read some of his books. He's a well-known speaker, an activist, and a best-selling author who has really been involved in a little bit of everything. He's worked alongside of Mother Teresa in Calcutta. He's led the Red Letter Christians movement. He's lectured at Harvard, Princeton, Duke, and many other universities, He's traveled to Iraq and Afghanistan to stand against war. Uh, He founded the Simple Way Community in Philadelphia. He's been championing grace in his efforts to end the death penalty. Uh, He's been involved in so many things in the life of the church. Shane really has committed his life to living as if Jesus really meant the things that he said. So on this week's episode, Shane jumps in. He shares with us the power of joy as we are ministering in the midst of some very serious issues. Uh, He speaks on how holy troublemakers are really an important part of the global church and why knowing people and really understanding their personal stories is so vital to understanding grace and justice as we serve the kingdom of God. Now, I believe you will laugh and you'll be encouraged And you'll likely be challenged as you listen to our conversation. So let's go ahead and jump right into this week's episode with Shane Claiborne. Well, I just want to welcome you, Shane, to the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you for taking time to to be with us today. Yeah, it's great to be with you. And it's wonderful to uh, connect with all these pastors and leaders. And it's good to to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So uh, first off, I just want to toss something out to you. Um, I know it's something that you're passionate about uh, in in your writing and and just in as you teach and as you speak uh, around the country, around the world. And that is the topic of joy. Okay, um, joy is is something that is, I think, key for us as Christ followers. Um, yet so many people in so many different circumstances seem to be missing out on joy. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? It does seem that joy is one, you know, it's a fruit one, uh, listed as one of the fruits of the spirit, you know, and uh, but it seems like it's one of those things that's a little endangered these days, you know, right. uh, and, and I think it's. There's so much important and serious stuff happening in the world that that I I, I think you know it's easy to have your joy get squashed and and if there's something I've learned from like conservatives and liberals it's that you can have a lot of great ideas and not have much fun <laughs> right <laughs> and I, I like how Emma Goldman said uh, if I can't dance then it's not my revolution and I you know I heard somebody else say that if if uh, uh, if you can't laugh, then the devil's already won. So I, I believe, you know, um, Jesus had joy and imagination. And, uh, and I think that the movement of, of Jesus in the world needs that joy. Um, and so I, I've, I've had the gift of living with uh, a lot of really fun folks over the years. I mean, not every day, you know, just uh, uh, peachy keen or whatever, but you know, like we, we, I, I live with some great pranksters. So, so at some of the hard points in my life, like when I came back from Iraq, I was over there 
you know, during the war and the bombing and saw a lot of heavy stuff. I came back and, uh, my first night of sleep, like I just crashed out and, um, my community mates, uh, hung a life-size poster of George Bush above my head, like a foot above my head. It was, I was in a bunk bed, you know, and I woke, I woke up and I'm like, oh my God, I got George Bush on top of me. Uh, but it was, it was great. You know, it, it reminded me to keep laughing and, uh, and I left it there, you know, so I could see him every night and pray for him and everything else. But, you know, I, I think that's part of what we need, especially, you know, with folks that are dealing with justice issues and stuff, we can get this self-righteousness and we can get, you know, um, overwhelmed by uh, either, either by the needs or by, uh, by ourselves. <laughs> you know, right, that's, right. That's the messianic hope for the world or something. So we got to be careful. I think we got to keep ourselves light, uh, as we, as we deal with heavy things. Yeah. I think, um, a lot of times we, we get really super serious about those issues that we're that we're championing, and and, and even the gospel, uh, which is important for us to, to be serious. But then we also balance that with what we see in Christ, um, this this absolute joy for people and for relationships. So for pastors who are in the trenches, right, yeah. and who are facing you know uh, their own challenges in, in unique ways, and, and trying to see the way forward as as someone who's leading you know a a community of of people. What are some some suggestions that you could give to help balance the seriousness of the call with with the joy? Well, one of the things that I I think we the posture that we can take too I think is that Jesus didn't come to give us guilt. Jesus came to give us life. Amen. And and so I don't think that guilt uh, is a very good motivator. I mean, it can be a good indicator, you know, that, that things are not quite right. But then I think love and joy, these things got to motivate us. And and that's why I look at some of my heroes, you know, uh, like, like Mother Teresa. She had a great sense of humor, you know. Um, I mean, at one point, this sort of starry-eyed journalist said to her, oh, Mother Teresa, you're such a saint. I couldn't do what you do if someone paid me a million dollars. And she said, I wouldn't do it for a million dollars either. She said, do it because it's what we're made for, you know? And, and I think the truth is that as we really um, dive into the life of Jesus that we see in the gospel, like it, it, can, it can look like uh, uh, overwhelming, you know, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, love your enemies. But there, it's actually, uh, th- this, is, this is truly life. And I think it's, it's uh, in the end, it really gives us uh, joy. It gives us uh uh, it, so it's, it's, it's that, that, that I think is important. And then I, you know, I, I think clinging to Jesus and, and, and every morning, you know, waking up and praying that Jesus would fill us with his spirit because he, uh, retained that sense of imagination and joy. And I think, you know, ever even as I go through my day, I'm often praying like the fruits of the spirit. That's one of the prayers I pray because <laughs> I, I need to. Uh, but I also, you know, one of those I'm all, all day long, I'm praying, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So my prayers are about kind of internalizing the joy and praying that, you know, the Spirit of God would give me joy when I don't feel it, would give me gentleness when I don't feel it, kindness when I don't feel it. So um, we're kind of relying on something bigger than ourselves, but I think we've, we've got to continually remind ourselves of that because if, we, if we're running on our own fuel, you know, we, we kind of hit the fumes pretty quick and, and we'll run out of steam. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. I, you know, I want to say one more thing about this, uh, this the joy thing is that it helps me to hang out with kids because kids have that imagination, you know, and Jesus said, you, you got to enter the kingdom like a kid. 
And, um, and and it's often the kids, even kids that have really had difficult lives, that have um, um, the, the, this sense of just innocence and joy. And uh, and they they've honest to goodness taught me a ton, you know. Um, uh, so I, you know, I, I think of one kid, uh, it was a friend of my, uh, my kid that, that said, uh, God loves Donald Trump, but that doesn't mean that God wants Donald Trump to be president. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just such an innocent, you don't know. Right, right. Another kid said, um, um, why do we have so many gun shops in Philadelphia when there aren't that many deer? And then, uh, you know, <laughs> laugh, you know, and, I, I think of the innocence, you know, when one of the kids in the neighborhood saw their first firefly, you know, and was like so overwhelmed and like drug me down the block and said, what is that? And I'm like, that was a really creative act of God where God said, I'm going to make a bug that's butt glows in the dark, you know, and we laughed. So I think, I think we've got to hang out with people who have joy too. Cause if you hang out with cynical people, you become more like them. And if you, you, you hang out with joyful people, people that, you know, um, can laugh despite the darkness, then, then that rubs off on us too. You mentioned that, that guilt isn't always the most effective, effective way to go about things, you know, guilting people into things. And, and um, I, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of protesting issues. Um, so things that, that you know, we, we feel strongly that we are against as the people of God and, and how we address those things. Talk to me a little bit about protesting and, and the effectiveness of that and what that looks like for those who are honoring God with their lives. So this, this protest thing, you know, I, I, um, I, I like to say that we're, we're not just protesting, but we're protestifying. You know, we're proclaiming that things can be different than they are. Um, but, but uh, you know, as I look at history, um, we have the prophets, we have um, all kinds of saints that were holy troublemakers, you know. It's um, why Dr. Martin Luther King, when he said, you know, at first when I went to jail, it troubled me, but then I looked at history and found that I was in really good company there. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? and, um, and, and, and part of what Dr. King said is that the, the, the real job of protest is to expose injustice so that it becomes so uncomfortable that people cannot remain silent, that they're, they're moved to act. Um, and I think part of the way that we do that is by amplifying the voices uh, of those who are suffering from injustice. So not just being a voice for the voiceless, but actually um, uh, amplifying the voices that aren't being heard and coming alongside of, of people um, uh, and, and kind of putting the spotlight on the margins that are, that are being ignored. Um, and we've we've tried to have a lot of creativity as we do that because we're we're trying to win the hearts and minds of people. And I, I don't know many people that get argued into thinking differently. Right, right, <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> but I know a whole lot of people that get moved um, uh, by their heart and they get storied in. And so I think we got to, you know, tell the stories. And so, you know, a, a recent example of that for me was, you know, we, we did this um, – uh, I guess you could call it a protest. We, we called it a public witness, you know, on the steps of the Supreme Court around the death penalty. Um, and we, we kind of went in a, in a very kind of sacred procession with uh, uh, it was the 40th anniversary of the first modern 
era execution. So after executions um, uh, continued after, uh, you know, in, in the 70s, um, this was the, the 40th year. And we held posters with the four, over 1,400 names of everyone that's been executed. Um, but then we also had murder victims' families there because we said to be against the, the killing of the death penalty is is not to be against victims of violence. Like we, we're against all killing, you know, and we stand for life. And so we had murder victims, families and families of the executed who held a sign together that said, remember the victims, but not with more killing. Um, and, and we also carried roses with the, the two different colors to remember the victims of murder and the victims uh, and their families that, that have been executed. And then we held a banner that said "Stop executions" on the, the courts of the on the steps of the Supreme Court, and and for that we were arrested and we go to trial this month. But I think it moved. I mean, there were people that came there and they saw it wasn't just about um, a protest, but it was about the stories. Um, several of the people arrested um, with me. There's 18 of us, and, and several were pastors and priests and religious leaders. But there were also folks that have been directly affected. So. Folks uh, like Suzanne Bossler, her her dad was killed, and he was a pastor, and she didn't want the death penalty um, for the person who did it, um, and she was one of the people that was arrested. Derek Jameson, who was wrongfully convicted and sentenced to death, he was almost killed. He had six execution dates, and then um, they forced the prosecution to release 34 pieces of evidence that proved his innocence and he was released after 20 years on death row. So it's those stories that I think we're trying to amplify and, um, uh, you know, but we've done a lot of creative actions over the years. We've we've uh, Philadelphia passed food ordinances that didn't allow you to feed homeless people. And so we had public picnics, you know, and had shirts that said, if Jesus had done the fish and loaves thing in Philly, he would have gone to jail, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so and we've you know, we've done a lot of different things, I think, over the years that um, uh, have really tried to expose injustice, but also to move the hearts of people um, to to pay attention to things that might be easy to ignore. No, that's good. I, I love what you say about um, moving people's hearts, because um, it's exactly true. I mean, you can debate and debate all you want. We see that going on all around the world, right? Um, yeah. But, but really, it's the story and and what connects with people's hearts, and that, and that goes back to our Father God. I mean, that's how how God works with us, right? The Holy Spirit is connecting with our hearts. Um, and, and helping us to see the goodness of the kingdom and how we can step into that as we follow Christ into the kingdom. So I love that idea of moving the hearts. Now, you mentioned about the executions, and, and that's been you know big news over this, this last year. Um, and I know that your, your most recent book you released last year, Executing Grace, How the Death Penalty Killed Jesus and Why It's Killing Us, you know, really addresses a lot of this. And so I was wondering if we could take a little bit of time talking a little more about um, this idea of the value of life, especially when we saw like the rush to execute those on death row in Arkansas based on, right. the, you know, the the, the uh, medications used to do the lethal injections were about to expire. So they wanted, didn't want to waste their, their uh, resources there. So can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, from, from the kingdom of God perspective as Christ followers, because we have people within the church on both sides of this issue. So can you share with us, you know, your you know, your understanding and in really what drives you when it comes to speaking out against executions. Yeah, absolutely. And and first of all, I should, you know, put it out there that I spent a lot of my life uh, for the death penalty. I, I was on the other side of this issue. Um, 
and and you know was convinced it had its roots in scripture and was ordained by God and you know it's 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 what you should do to a few but some of the worst of the worst you know and and uh, and um and and I'll tell you a number of things happened um, to me one of them is that I got to know um, a lot of folks on death row um, and I saw that at the heart of this issue is the question of redemption. Um, uh, Even for those who have done terrible things, um, can, does God's grace have a word in that? Like, is, is there something that can happen to some, someone that they can be transformed? And then you look at the Bible and you see that we, we sure as heck better believe that because like one of the first murderers is Moses. (laughs) And then David killed Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband to cover up his sin. Like Paul, uh, you know, Saul of Tarsus went door to door trying to kill Christians and oversaw the execution of Stephen, you know, the first martyr of the church. I mean, he was a religious extremist by every definition. So I think you, you look at these stories of transformation and, uh, if we, if we don't believe that, murderers are beyond redemption we could rip out half the bible uh, it was written by them <laughs> right right <laughs> the bible would be a lot shorter without grace so i i think that's um one of the things that that i began to 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 really uh think through and then to go back to those scriptures that i myself had used to justify the death penalty and take a closer look and there's all kinds of uh uh, I, I think, um, uh, holes in, uh, a theology that justifies the death penalty. Um, I mean, for starters, uh, capital murder wasn't the only like, uh, uh, uh death worthy crime. You know, there's like 30 death worthy crimes in scripture, um, <laughs> you know, in the, right. in the Old Testament working on the Sabbath, you know, like, uh, dis- disrespecting your parents, uh, you know? So anyway, the, you know, I, I looked at all that and even, you know, Cain and Abel, uh, you, we have this idea of taking life for life, but what does God do? God doesn't kill Cain. God actually protects Cain and allows Cain to live and eventually have a family and build a city. So I think that this story of redemption's um, so important. And, and and what is troubling about the death penalty that is unique um, is that Christians have been the problem. Um, in fact, the Bible Belt is the death belt. 85% of executions happen in the Bible Belt, which is where I grew up, you know, states down south. It's also true that the, the states that uh, held on to slavery the longest um, continue to hold on to the death penalty. And there's a very deep and troubling connection, I think, when it comes to race, um, that where lynchings were happening 100 years ago is precisely where executions are happening now. And we end up, you know, kind of thinking we're killing the worst of the worst. But the truth is we're killing the poorest of the poor and disproportionately um, people of color uh, who continue to make up, uh, you know, almost half of death row and over a third of the execution. So there's all kinds of things to unpack with it. That's why I felt very um, compelled to, to write a book about it. But but I, I, I think that the question of where Christians stand on this is incredibly urgent because the fact is the death penalty wouldn't stand a chance in America if it weren't for the support of Christians. And we've created both the, the ethical and the theological backbone that has allowed it to survive. Uh, and yet, if you ask Americans, would Jesus be in favor of the death penalty? 
um, I think it was Pew that did exactly that. It was either Pew or Gallup. They, you know, they did this poll, and 95% of Americans said Jesus would be against the death penalty. We've just got to um, convince the Christians to take him seriously. You know. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so, and and you know, millennials. This is changing. Like, like, uh, it's like 80% of millennial Christians are against the death penalty, and and so I, I think this is shifting. Um, executions are the lowest they've been in, in 20 years. They drop lower every year. Um, death sentences are the lowest they've been in almost half a century. So the death penalty is like on its way out. But the question is, where will the church be um, as we make history? And it, it doesn't take courage to look back at slavery and say slavery is wrong you know, a generation after we've abolished it. Like it, I think it, it, you know, it takes courage to say slavery is wrong when it's still um, normal and still accepted. Right. And, and I think that's exactly the courage that we need in the church right now from pastors and um, from worship leaders and artists and authors and, and, and really from all of us uh, to say no to the death penalty. That's good. I, I like what you said uh, early on in that when you said that your, your mind and your heart, your opinion began to be shifted as you got to know people who are actually on death row. This goes back to knowing people's stories, right? And, yeah. and, and putting faces and um, lives to the, these things instead of stepping back and just talking, you know, in a, you know, kind of a macro level, but actually knowing people, um, which again, I think relates directly to um, how, how God knows us individually, personally knows our stories. Um, and yeah. so then those stories, as you, as you got to know those people and those stories that drove you to, to returning to scripture, right. And, and, and saying, wait a second, let, let, maybe I need to dig more deeply into this and, yeah. and I think that's something that, you know, regardless of what the issue might be, I think that's something for all of us that we're always on this journey, right? We're, we're continuing to, to grow in Christ. We're following Christ. The Spirit is shaping us into the people God created us to become. And so as we open ourselves up to um, people and to life on life and hearing people's stories, that should drive us back to Scripture and to God and, and let God and the Spirit continue to shape us and mold us. Um, so have you found that throughout your, your life, that that's kind of um, how God is, is continuing to work as you do life on life, as you know people, as, as the Spirit brings that back around to the truth of God and, and the truth that we find in Scripture? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, maybe it's why Jesus told so many stories, you know, and he also like just had real interactions with real people. And that, that's part of what I think we lose when we just talk about things, you know, in a kind of... Uh, detached way of arguing scripture or talking, you know, back and forth at each other with facts. And, and I think all those things are important, but um, we've really got to think about the people who are the faces and the names of these issues. Um, and, and there's, there's even um, things I, I didn't even uh, think of when I it was like with, with the death penalty, for instance, when I started looking at, it, I never really thought what, what about the people who are left with the dirty work of executing someone? And then I talked with Ron McAndrew, who is a former prison warden, and he oversaw the executions in Florida by electric chair. And he was just absolutely haunted by it. And I mean, when I talked to him, you still know that you're talking to a, a tough on crime guy. You know, he's like, you do the crime, you should do the time. He said, but execution something altogether def different. And he, um, moved Florida from the electric chair to lethal injection to try to be more sanitized in the way we execute. And he, he just said, but I realize there's no good way to kill someone. As you do it, it just does something to those of us who kill. It does something to us as a society 
to, to kill to show that killing is wrong, where we're, we become the very evil that we're trying to heal, heal the world of. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think there's so many other names and, and faces. So that's why I, I, I lean in and I listen. I think particularly right now, um, there's a lot of talking, but not much listening. And, and we've got to listen, especially to uh, folks who have suffered the brunt of our history um, around race and slavery. Um, and, um, and, and, and those stories uh, are not always the ones that we, we want to hear. Um, but, uh, but we've got to uh, do some listening right now. All right. No, that's good. That's good. Keep our ears open, right? In engage in those conversations. As as we're talking about this, you know, execution, as you said, you know, it's it's actually strongest in the Bible Belt, and that, you know, I, I can't help but think, you know, within the church, there are greatly differing opinions and, and interpretations on a variety of issues, you know, not just uh, the death penalty. But how do we, um, as the people of God, how do we find unity? How do we kind of come together and and what does that look like in practical practical terms? Yeah, so a couple of things I, I would suggest is is one of them is I think we can find unity in Jesus and we've got to start with Jesus because the fact is that a lot of Christians have we we've lost the cornerstone, you know, our centering on Jesus. And when we when we lose our centering uh, on Jesus, we end up talking a lot about things Jesus didn't talk about. And we don't talk about things that Jesus had a whole lot to say about. So I, I think when we when we really look at Jesus and um, Sermon on the Mount, we see the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, uh, the peacemakers, you know, like th- these are the things that are the antithesis of many of the the, the values that we celebrate in America um, and the things that win elections. So I, I think <laughs> we've got to realize that Jesus is very countercultural and 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 then I, I I think we one of the things I that we need in the church is uh, a consistent life ethic. And there's parts of Christianity that have talked about this for um, ages and centuries. But I see a lot of like um, f- young people and and pastors resonating with uh, this idea of the sanctity of all life. So to me, that means that you know pro life is often. Um, just become synonymous with anti-abortion or right. or pro-birth, right. and I think abortion is a very important issue, um, uh, but it's not the only life issue. So I think a consistent ethic of life says I I, I don't want to just be pro-birth. I want to be pro-life from the womb to the tomb. I want to advocate for life. I want to stand against death in every expression. So uh, to be consistently for life and against the death penalty, concerned about gun violence, standing in the way of war and militarism and, you know, a part of the movement for black lives. And all of these things are issues of life, the environment. And the problem is that we don't have a political camp or party that has a consistent ethic of life. So we think that those are our only options. But I, I don't think we need to budge on this. I think we need to continue to say um, we are are not going to um, uh, give up on, on this idea of a consistent life ethic. Um, and and uh, uh, boy, I, I think that has a lot of power to it. It has a lot of integrity to it, too, because it's, it's easy to find a lot of folks that are pro-life on one issue, uh, but, you know, for, for the death penalty or something else on another issue. And, and, uh, and I think a lot of folks that are looking at Christianity see, uh, the, the contradictions of that. And, and so, uh, 
that that's that's one of the things I think that can unite us under a bigger umbrella of a, of a consistent life ethic that says any time a life is taken, we lose a part of the image of God in the world because every person is a bearer of of, of God's image. That's solid. Now, I, I've noticed a lot in in your writings and, and when you speak as well that you you tend to extend a lot of grace and even generosity toward people that have um, differing opinions than you do. Um, I've always appreciated that about you, that um, because a lot of times, uh, and I'm really within the church, you know, a lot of the rhetoric gets gets pretty rough. Um, you know, if you don't agree with with someone, you know, oftentimes people, you know, try to make you feel lesser of a person or or that type of a thing. Um, what what role does grace and generosity, those types of things, play? Um, when we're discussing these matters of great importance within the church, well, it's it's kind of uh, natural to uh, extend grace to people I'd, that don't agree with me because I haven't always agreed with me um, uh, where I <laughs> you know, where, where I am now, and I think we got to allow each other. Um, you know, as, as the scripture says that we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, so we're all being shaped by God, and we've got to give each other. Um, some space to do that and allow each other to change our views. And, and, and I think one of the most dangerous things in our world is self-righteousness. And right. that's why Jesus, you know, talked to the religious elite and said, you're a brood of vipers, you know, um, you heap heavy burdens on people. And he, he called it the, the yeast of the Pharisees, that it's, it's contagious, you know, and I think self-righteousness has many different expressions. You know, there's a form that I grew up with of kind of religious Phariseeism that's like, thank you know, I don't smoke or drink or, you know, curse or any of those things. And then there's, there's kind of a different expression in progressivism of, um, you know, uh, I don't drive an SUV. I drive a Prius, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I would never drink at Starbucks. I go to the independent coffee shop, you know, or whatever. Like, so I think that like that self-righteousness is toxic because it makes other people feel terrible by artificially kind of uh, making ourselves look very pious. And, 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 and so I, I don't think that God came to make uh, bad people good, but to, to bring dead people to life. And you can be moral, but not alive. You know, you can keep all the rules and still um, be self-righteous and judgmental. So I think Jesus came to change our hearts, you know, and, and, and that's where love and grace play such a role. And if we really know that we've, we've, ex, we've been extended that grace by God, we know our own hypocrisies and contradictions, I think that allows us to be more gracious people in the world. So when people say to me, the church is full of hypocrites, I say, no, it's not. We've always got room for more. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> but, but, I, but I think we've got to admit that this whole story is about imperfect people falling in love with a perfect God and we're trying to become more and more like that God every day, but we fall short over and over, and we need each other's uh, grace to help us carry us in those times. That's awesome. Again, keeping in mind that our audience is you know, primarily pastors, ministers, church leaders, um, what would be one thing that you would like to, to kind of share um, with pastors? You know, uh, per, Most of our pastors are across the U.S. and, and Canada, but we do have, have listeners from all over the world. But but what is what is something that's you know on your heart? You have an opportunity to speak to tens of thousands of pastors right now. What would you share with them? I I would say this kind of on that same thing theme that um, right now I don't think that the world is looking for Christians who are perfect. I think they're looking for Christians who are honest and for 
what has happened is that often we've acted like we're perfect uh, and and um that that the church is kind of a country club for saints rather than a place for wounded people you know to find god and uh, I went to a congregation not long ago where the the um, the greeters uh, outside they didn't just have suits on but they had t-shirts on that said no perfect people allowed. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. They're kind of you know we're just going to get this uh, straight from the get go. Right, you know, right. before you walk in, as long as you know you're not perfect, you're welcome here. And um and and so I I, I think that that's that's uh, a part of what we need to be you know to be really honest about those place th- those things and um. And uh, and share out of our own brokenness, out of our own um, uh, uh, doubts and things like that. Um, uh, and and the the other thing I would say is is that uh, a lot of Christianity has been so concerned with life after death that we've sort of lost the importance of life before death. You know, and I heard someone say, like, a lot of Christians are so heavenly minded that they're not much earthly good, uh, that we, we, we begin to see, you know, our, our faith just as a ticket into heaven uh, or, you know, as I heard growing up, fire insurance, you know, that we're, we're but and it can become a license to ignore the injustice and the suffering of the world around us. So I think we can do both. I think we can celebrate the afterlife. It's going to be beautiful. But, you know, we can't just promise the world life after death when a lot of the world is asking if there's life before death and if the good news has any relevance to the reality that they're faced with every day. So I think that's the beauty of, of Jesus. He's teaching us to pray the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So what does it mean to seek that? And, you know, at the end of the day, I I think we're we're all going to be gathered before God. And according to Jesus in Matthew 25, we're going to be asked a few questions. And they're not just going to be doctrinal questions, you know. Um, Virgin birth, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree. Right, right. (laughs) But they're going to be like, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was in prison, did you come visit me? When I was a stranger, a refugee, an immigrant, did you welcome me in? You know, so I, I think we've got to um, realize that, that 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 the real demonstration of our faith uh, is how it works itself out in compassion and love to the most vulnerable people in the world, and we've got to continue um, uh, singing that song. I mean, that's that's what Jesus did, and. We live in in a world where there's a lot of hatred right now, and there's a lot of fear. And I think Scripture's promise is that love casteth out fear. Right. We can see in the United States right now. I think that fear uh, casteth out love. You know, it doesn't have much much room for love, and so we've got to insist on love. And um, you know, as Scripture says, "Who has seen God?" But if we love one another, you know, God lives in us. That's that's. What they're going to know that we are Christians by is not our doctrinal statements, our T-shirts or bumper stickers, but by our love. Awesome. That's beautiful, brother. Well, um, I want to thank you for being with us. But if people want to connect with you, um, what's the best way? Website, Twitter? Um, can yeah, you share I, some of that? I do my best on the social media. If people want to see our new baby chickens and our chicken coop and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm active on Twitter. It's just my name, Shane Claiborne, and uh, same on Facebook, Facebook and Twitter. And and um, for our local work, people can check out our community here in Phil on the north side of Philadelphia. It's called the Simple Way, and the website's thesimpleway.org. 
Uh, and then the, the, the bigger movement of, of things uh, that I'm a part of is called Red Letter Christians. So a lot of my writing and speaking and a lot of my friends uh, who are speaking the same message of Jesus and justice, uh, we can all be ha- found on uh, redletterchristians.org. Awesome, brother. Well, it's been such a joy to have you with us today, and I certainly appreciate your heart and, and all that you're doing to to be Christ in your community and to reflect the the goodness, the love, the grace, the hospitality, um, the generosity of Christ. And uh, we, we certainly love you. Appreciate what you're doing, brother. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, and thanks to all the pastors out there building, building the church that God dreams of. So keep it up, and I, um, may we be one as God's one. Amen. Amen, brother. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Every week, as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they can benefit uh, from these interviews as well. And again, we thank you in advance. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.